0: Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown. Osiris. Loyalty. Described as, do
1: you care? And I care. And that's why I'm on this show. Comes a time. (laughs) Here we go. (laughs) I'm a sucker for O'Teal, man. It's all that same feeling that I have.
2: That would he fill the void that I didn't even know existed. It feels so good too, as Ben said, to try to do something about an issue as opposed to
3: complaining. If you can't help don't hurt if we could just all get out there and throw cream pops at each other maybe (laughs) instead of bullets and angry words it would be better when you stop laughing you stop living
0: there's a worldwide surge in interest in mushrooms it was deep man it's not
3: that tm makes your mind quiet down there it already is we're just stuck up here, we've lost access. Jumpin' Jack Flash came out by the Stones. So
2: I
0: thought, all right, perfect, man. I'm gonna drive, and I started driving through the neighborhood, and I got, I got a text from Mick Jagger. <laughs> <laughs> People saying that, you know, what we do
3: is non-essential. Well, playing those few gigs that yeah. you saw me at felt pretty essential to me. It wasn't like they were clapping from here. Is they were clapping from here. My view of things is that death, death is the last and best reward for a life well lived.
4: Like you gotta, it's the strangest of places if you look at it right, you know? If
1: you're liking what you're hearing, head on over to patreon.com forward slash comes a time pod and get your bus pass for an extra episode every week.
4: Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Comes a Time. That's O'Teal. And that's Mike, I think, <laughs> actually wherever, wherever you way. are. Yeah, it's good to see Happy. you, buddy. You How too, are you, man?
1: I'm good. I'm super tired. But, you know, that good tired from Roots Rock Revival. Oh, it was. Man. And I got to tell you, man, we were going to do this thing, The Word, which is Robert Randolph and and Yeah. Luther Dickinson. And Robert Randolph couldn't make it. So we brought up Roosevelt Collier <sighs> and this other cat, Ray Ray, that actually went to Roosevelt's church. They knew he hadn't seen him in 10 years. Wow. So he's playing this low baritone g- tone guitar. He usually plays bass. And at one point, Roosevelt goes, you need to hear, Bruh play the steel. So they sat next to each other and he started this song and then they would trade solos. They would just rip. And then he, they're sitting right next to each other. And he'd hand the steel to Roosevelt. Roosevelt rip, hand it back to him.
4: Holy and it job. just kept
1: notching up like this till we just... I was like, well, we put the revival in Roots Rock (laughs) Revival for sure. This time, the legit, it was unreal, man. Ah, It was unreal. So I'm worn out, but that good,
4: Good totally emptied the gas tank. Yeah. Good, good. Right well, after man,
1: emptying it on tour.
4: <laughs> I know, he dove right back up. But at least this was cool because you didn't have to, like, it was one travel. It was one long stay. It wasn't, you know, and the yep. pictures were incredible. They really were. Um, today on the podcast, we have um, Mark Rodriguez. This was a really interesting um He's an artist who also created a book that is incredible. Like we learn all about his book. um, I want to get the name right. After all is said and done, taping the Grateful Dead, 1965 to 1995. And he dove real deep into the minutes of Grateful Dead meetings, history of taping um, the decisions to allow taping or actually like solidify a space for tapers and kind of everything that comes with what made those tapes that we listen to. And it's uh it's a really interesting chat. It's a, a passion project.
1: Super cool. I, I am so, uh, the sub culture thing never gets old to me. Yeah. And the more i look at the Grateful Dead and the Allman Brothers and this whole scene, you know, the pranksters, like all of it together, like it's as heavy as any scene. It's just as rich and deep historically as jazz or blues or I mean, obviously, classical music goes so, so far back, but its roots are in that. So yeah. It's just, and you know, carnies, professional wrestlers, like just all the the subculture thing. Yeah. I just went to my first card show because Nigel was getting some Pokemon cards and they had uh, WWE and UFC. Nice. Got some of my first cards. And it was weird. Like some of the characters around and just like sitting there and watching the subculture. It was, there was, I saw a straight up alien there and his (laughs) dad. I was like, you know, I really wish Jess was there. The guy I went with, I couldn't tell. But you know, it's the same thing. You hear the stories of just the tapers and all. You know, getting the minutes to those meetings and stuff to see what was actually uh, talked about and and what was intentional. Yeah, And then even some of the things that were just like, well, let's just try this. Just throwing stuff against the wall. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It never gets old. It never gets old
4: to me. And and, and it's great because you know what? This is the Grateful Dead fans, music fans, anybody that's involved. Like someone who loves and is passionate about anything is always looking for more food. You know what I mean? So he's just setting up a five-pound book of... stuff to look at and read and and that's really incredible so uh hats off to to mark for making this book and it's a decade-long yeah. process and uh glad he joined us and thank you guys for joining us uh for another episode we're here on osiris home to so many great podcasts you can check them out at osirispod.com and for an extra episode each week go to com forward slash comes a time pod and join us for a bonus episode each week O'Teal, you got some O'Teal and Friends shows coming up. Super excited.
1: Yeah, I am, to... man. Well, how about you, man? Yeah, open I got up shows for coming. Seinfeld. Oh,
4: no, 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 no. I didn't open up for Seinfeld. No, no. I did a sh- spot in front. No, no. Let's. <laughs> no. <laughs> he He was on after me. I just happened to go on. Hey, man. If I him. go on before Hendrix. <laughs> <laughs> I <didn't open> up. <laughs> I'm saying I open for Hendrix. No, you know, well, I don't yeah, care. Like, maybe. Yeah. Which That's would be really new york comedy you never know who's who's going to be going before you or after you but it was it was neat that was a lot of fun it was a good time down in new york that but, was a uh,
1: great text to get i was like oh man yeah bro so yeah. Uh, good luck on that we'll see who else you uh,
4: end up doing shows with opening for this week this week yeah well thank you everybody for listening and uh, we'll catch you next time asking if you were that you were the guy in the the pictures that you sent with the mustache
2: yeah it's kind of that thing where i took a bunch of pictures before like before the book really got underway and those are the pictures i have and then the pandemic happened so and i kind of changed my appearance every now and then so i figured that might come up where it's like who are you (laughs) It's a heck of a mustache. Yeah, Um, it was was the Zappa mustache. Yeah. The the
4: welcome back Cotter. Yeah. So you're, you're currently in, uh, was it New Mexico?
2: I am in New Mexico right now. Yes. So it it doesn't look like it, of course, because I have white walls, but. (laughs) uh, How did you end up there? Is that where you're from? No, I'm originally from Chicago, but um, I I was living in Los Angeles for the last 14 years or so. And then as the pandemic started, my wife and I started to try and figure out what the point of being in L.A. was. And our conclusion was that they had like L.A. just had a great diversity of food options. (laughs) And that was like the only thing that was holding us there. And uh, we just from there started to look for other places to move to that might be more uh, engaging for the lives that we wanted to lead. And New Mexico kind of checked a bunch of boxes for us. So we ended up here. How are you liking it so far? It's great. Um, it's very quiet which is, uh, much desired. And, uh, don't hear helicopters raging over my head every five minutes. <laughs> wow. And, uh, you know, there's great hikes like 20 minutes away or even less. And, um, you know, I, I keep thinking cause I'm, you know, a city boy through and through. So born in Chicago, like all I know is city, but, um, being out in a more rural area is, you know, doesn't freak me out. You know, it's nice and I'm getting acclimated to it just fine.
1: It's nice after all that city life to like flip it. You know, my aunt lived in the Bronx forever and very late in life, like seventies, she moved to Colorado Springs. She's like enough, I had enough and she loves it.
2: Colorado she's Springs. Growing weed
1: out in her backyard and shit.
2: <laughs> I mean, I thought I would never get to a point where I could actually facilitate a move away from a city center, but um having figured out that it's possible was, you know, I'm I'm pleased as punch. I'm very grateful. It's like an amazing opportunity that I don't think a lot of people get to do from a city. And also people from a city might just get freaked out by you know rural life the quiet
4: yeah <laughs> yeah quiet is hard for some people for sure i wonder it about is. that too why yeah. that like some maybe just the noise of the city might keep people in the city you know yeah, what i mean like absolutely just that, just that that baseline rumble of you know ambulances and people talking <laughs> and stuff like that horns and yeah just it, everything. getting the quiet and you're like oh shit my brain
2: (laughs) yeah exactly i can hear it now i mean for a mind like my own that's very busy and anxiety-ridden in general i think which is the reason i like to create uh being in a rural area just forces me to do more things you know it's like all right what kind of like house chores do i have or what kind of like other little projects do I have around the house? And then what do I do with art practice and that sort of thing? So there's like even more stuff to do than, you know, yeah. the usual get in a car and wait 40 minutes to get to the thing to do the <laughs> other thing. <laughs> yeah.
1: I it love the, like uh, the, the, it's never really quiet. Like Earth is not a quiet place. No. <laughs> but without all the other like crap noise, I tend to go focus on, and that's the first thing I notice when I get back home, I'm like, ah, oh, I hear insects again. Yeah. You know, it's just so many myriad sounds if you just sit quietly that the city drowns out. So there's plenty to focus on. It's just not the, ah, you know.
4: Yeah. Yeah. It's birds <laughs> chirping. It's birds fighting over seed instead of, uh trains screeching to a halt. (laughs) Yeah. Or you hear six
1: different kinds of birds. You're like, wow, that's, these two are having a conversation. These, I don't know. I just like to, I'm a city boy too. My parents are New Yorkers. I was born and raised in DC. I've been in a big city the entire time and I'm still in the city. It's a little city, but we, Mm. we, I started living more out in the country Right. when i rode motorcycles and then just like now honestly no joke the smell of cow shit gives me like uh it triggers me in a good way i'm like oh. but you never smell because your windows are usually up when you're driving you know but if right. i smell it it makes me think of motorcycles.
4: so i, I totally successfully flipped it you must have loved been up at being up at roots rock then because that's cow shit city up there Dude, a black bear!
1: So we're—they we, gave me a golf cart this year because now I'm the old guy, I'm the senior <laughs> member. So uh, we uh, we have this music camp up in the Catskills called Roots Rock Revival that one of the drummers from the Almond Brothers started, oh. and we've been doing—it's our ninth year, and the kids are—you know—we I didn't have kids when we started, so I got the kids in the back of the golf cart, and I see a baby black bear over here coming this way to cross the road. And I'm going like this to go to breakfast. Oh, man. And it's way in front of us. And I spot him on the other side down where our campers are, which means that's where mama is. Big mama. Oh, man. (laughs) But here comes this black. And I show, I tell the kids, look, black bear. Because we talked about on the way up. And he went across the road and up into, dude, it was a family moment. They were freaking. (laughs) He saw like four or five deer at dusk every day on the side of the hill going back. And it's just one of those like total nature. If there's a mountain lion up there. There sure are yeah. like, it's a little, you know, and these guys were camping down there. But the <laughs> Kids loved it, man.
4: And you can nice. hear everything. It's like, yeah, it's super quiet. quiet. Sometimes I the mean,
2: quiet is the loudest part. It's the thing I like to describe to people when they ask me how it is <clears throat> living in a more rural area, is that it's kind of like, I think the dynamic is that like, and I'm just relating to your black bear experience. It's like with nature, it's nature's the main thing against you. So like it's nature versus man putting it in that kind of, you know, conflict kind of theme. And then like the city is more man versus man. like. You know, if I'm to put it into like a narrative structure, I guess. (laughs) For sure. But nature is also the show. Yeah. Yeah. Which is cool
1: because if you just sit and chill, there's so much going on. You're like, wow, this is a great show. Like if I could just slow down for it, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) but you got to be saving some money on that state tax, bro. (laughs) People say I can't afford to move. I'm like, how can you afford to stay?
4: That's it right there. Yeah. how can you afford to stay LA, yeah. LA had a huge exodus when uh, when the, when COVID hit so did New York right. but now New York is the highest price rent ever in,
2: in New York City yeah. history right now Mike you're in New York right I'm right outside yeah yeah yeah. it is strange how that happened too where it was like move while you can in 2020 and 2021 because the prices are cheap no one's there and then it's as soon as everyone came back, it's like, uh let's raise <laughs> raise it up. Yeah.
4: So let's talk about your book. You uh did a pretty pretty incredible
2: endeavor that you've
4: worked on here.
2: Um when did the project begin? Um the well the project itself that's basically the book is documenting started in two thousand and ten. And the book itself started I'll say negotiations in uh <laughs> two thousand seventeen, so it was kind of a I always describe it as like two phases there's the part where we had to get permission from Rhino and that whole rigmarole, and that took mm-hmm. three years to do, and then the book itself, once it started moving, was a two year process so all in all you know, a decade, over a decade's worth of work compiled into the 300 page five pound baby that got delivered as a book.
1: It's a, it's incredible how much more patient I found that I had to be <laughs> than I would have uh, anticipated when I was younger. Like I just finished a project that it took 10 years from the idea to like, but it's uh, it's worth it. You know, if you can, uh,
2: oh, yeah, I love, I mean, I aerothol. love endurance, pro- like uh, not endurance projects, but like time based projects that just take forever because I feel like you kind of live your life and you start inserting subconsciously kind of your life into it over time, and mm-hmm. so it makes it so much more enriching to kind of be a participant in your own project, but also to look back on it and be like, oh, yeah, we you know, like I did this at this point in my life, which was maybe two or three years ago or whatever it is. And I learned this and, you know, I've, I've made this decision as a result of that, which totally changed the projection of the outcome and all that sort of thing. So I kind of prefer long-term over short-term. It's, I mean, music's different, I think, cause it's such an immediate, uh, art form. So, uh, but you know, could also take a long time to make, a you know a creative project you know uh happen over the span of well,
1: I feel like it never ends with music, so it's just right. like the ultimate marathon from the day you start to the day you die <laughs> you know <laughs> literally yeah yeah and then and and certainly with projects like you say there's the art part then there's the business part and yeah. the business part can really it's bad enough getting inspired and not wanting to trash my ideas but then the <laughs> business part's just like uh, you know it
2: suffocates <laughs> yeah. it yeah It's, I mean, it's a dance between you being this creative act or person or force or whatever you want to call it. And then you're dealing with people that like that maybe, or they are, they are creatives themselves, but then you have this intermingling of people that aren't exactly creatives and all of them have different amounts of power and sway and contacts and all that stuff. So you kind of got to like be real patient with the whole. process. (laughs)
1: Well, I wanted to ask you, like you were talking about working with, uh, creatives and non-creatives. Was this purely a solitary project for you or did you have someone you were working with, uh, doing the book?
2: Oh no. I mean, it was with anthology editions, which is the publisher and there were, (laughs) I mean, I worked, Uh, alongside like A&R basically for the three years getting the you know Rhino stuff sealed away and then it kind of was my own um, my own kind of thing doing the research that I wanted to do and kind of you know dealing with the content that I wanted to show and then I worked with an editor uh, who is really gracious and uh, nice to work with given that I'm really nitpicky and like almost like too OCD and like annoying in that regard. Cause like, I love options and I'm like, Oh, we could do this and this and this, you know? Um, and then I worked with the, the designer to like work together. So I kind of worked alongside like all the separate parts that make up a book, you know, pretty closely and intimately, uh, which was fun for me. Cause I kind of like, Bouncing stuff off of people, but I'm not sure if that's reciprocating the other end, and that I'm not annoying <laughs> the pants off of someone.
1: Well, details uh, aren't a bad thing, you know. No, like,
2: right. Yeah, I, I, I have mean, a friend.
1: It's... He says I'm just OCD enough to be useful because he's a sound <laughs> man. And, you know, just wrapping all the chords
4: and just like the details, like everything's tight and right. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's an excellent point. And when you're doing research on something that you love and that you're passionate about, you want it to be, you know, it's not like you're working on someone else's project. Like you want it to be as detailed and as succinct. And especially with this, uh, you know, topic and this subject the tapers and everybody were extremely detailed and extremely OCD (laughs) about
2: their tapes. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, it's funny you bring that up because it's like knowing the subject matter the way that I do too, and working with, you know, a book publisher who's like down for the cause, but everyone involved might not be that, that enthusiastic about the subject matter. So in terms of like, editing it'd be like oh no we need this because so and so you know is important because they're connected to so and so and then so and so has this other you know it's like story after story after storyline and they're like oh okay spider web (laughs) yeah Yeah. (laughs) you know with the dead family it's not like you know a plus b equals c it's like a more advanced like a what is it c plus plus Kind of like mathematics, like matrix. Six thing. degrees. Yeah. Six
1: degrees from Kevin Bacon. Yeah, it's like six to seven
2: degrees of Dick Vatla.
0: Because <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you know, honestly, I
1: have so many, like every time I think the it's unconnected with the dead, it like connects back up to my childhood. Like I found a, a friend of mine who's like a big fusion head. I was telling him about Weir and then maybe because we were talking about it popped up in my algorithm, like Bob Weir with Billy Cobham and Alfonso Johnson. And I was like, there you go. All your heroes (laughs) with, and mind with, we like, it's really connecting up crazy. It's all connected. It's
4: (laughs) so wild. Even with doing this podcast where we end up like 20 episodes later, someone's telling a story that links up to something that we talked about two months ago (laughs) or something. And then three months from now we'll hear, you know, it, it really is kind of, it's surreal. It's surreal, and in the tape world and in the collectors' world, I mean, it must be uber that.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, crazy. it's that, but I mean, also, uh, uh, yeah. In thinking about like starting the book and what I wanted to provide, it, you know, the thing that. Um, I kind of wanted to set apart from was like, you know, the big decision was like, Oh, do you interview like a bunch of tapers and get all their war stories and that sort of thing? Or do you kind of try and like go out at it another Avenue because that already exists. So for me, it was like, I wanted to go to the archive at uh, UC Santa Cruz and just kind of pick around those files. And luckily enough, by I, we like signed contracts and everything to get the book started, like in February of 2020. So I had like, you know, unbeknownst to me and the rest of the world, I had like a finite period of time to like access information and, um, I ended up going to UCSC during like a student strike, which took a day off my research and I managed to call all these documents. Like the one day I had, um, luckily from the (laughs) archive. And there's a bunch of business, uh, meeting minutes from the eighties that were Mm. really interesting. And Mm. from that and a few other scattered documents, I was able to like, formulate another direction towards like the Grateful Dead production company as like, you know, a set of staff, basically, like people who had worked very closely with the band and worked closely alongside this time period where taping was legitimized basically after, you know, over a decade of it being kind of illegitimate, but accepted by the organization. Um, So I chose to go that route instead of like actually just talking to tapers to be like, what'd you record? What'd you record with? What, you know, how did it sound? What's the funny story here at this date? So um, not to discredit them, obviously, because this book is basically about the end result of the tapers. But I just wanted to. you know, approach it where I got like some new or like maybe lesser-known information about like the decision-making process around the band to make that uh, more available, I guess. Which changed the whole culture of taping within the subculture of the deadheads and et cetera,
1: et cetera. I remember I friends was... of mine that were on like the jazz scene or different scenes. They were just not. Nah totally still like I would say well into the 90s all through the 90s um not into the taping and I think YouTube finally just destroyed like let it go man I was trying to tell him like it's free marketing man what are you talking about yeah like if people are talking about your stuff and trading it they're definitely coming to the shows like Yeah. And then some. uh, Yeah, I don't know. It was weird that it still lasted that long. I had kind of been on the jam band scene for a while and and saw how
4: useful it was. Yeah. Uh, But they just were stuck in the old paradigm, you know, I like I, I really appreciated Garcia's comment to it whenever anybody would ask him about it. He's like, well, when we're done with it, they can have it. Like I kind of thought that was a neat, like one sentence answer where it was like, we've, We're have we done with the moment. So let them take it and have it. We don't need it anymore. So it, right. I just thought that was kind of like a instant popper of a balloon right there where he's just like, Yeah, that's. <laughs> well, they're not selling it either. Like the other guys were like, Oh, they're going to sell it. It's Some like, folks well, But on our keep, scene, at they're tape, just going to. Sh- yeah. Yeah. But, at, like, you know, most trading. of it, it's like, It's. Yeah. Right. Right. It should just be trading. Right. And that. Mark to your, like, that's probably something you came across, right? Like the difference between just trading and then like conventions and stuff where people would set up tables and sell the tapes.
2: Um, not so much. I mean, yes, that existed I think in the sixties and then going on into the early seventies with like actual LPs that were bootlegs. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is, it's like a storyline, but when you talk to a few people like that were more you know like i I talked to a gentleman steve brown who worked with grateful dead records um in a large capacity and i asked him about those types of bootlegs and he was like they're around i mean but it's not like you could do anything about it and i think uh, in comparison to other bands at the time like I think the Grateful Dead were like, we don't have time to deal with this bullshit. Like, it's there. Like, what are we going to do about it? You know, and also it's the attitude that Garcia had where it's like, and I'm sure the rest of the, a lot of the rest of the band had the same idea was, uh, you know, it's like, what are we going to do with this live material? Like they weren't thinking about like 1998 where they're like, Oh we got to survive off of what we have left of like our band because we don't have the, the leader anymore. So um, there's that part. And then in the files, actually, there was a lot of internal, comp- you know, I'll say company correspondence about um, like more like Japanese bootlegging and like yes,
1: video,
2: video bootlegs. So it's like uh. with the advent of CD technology, it finally crept up by the nineties that like, this was more of an issue because it was probably a little bit more advanced than LPs sifting around like the Bay area or New York or LA or whatever it is. But, um, I didn't, I guess I didn't really like hone in on that too much. Cause that wasn't the, the bigger story was, uh, for me it was more like who actually made the decision or like who came up with the idea where it's like, all right, we need like a section for these tapers to tape.
1: Yeah. Um, what surprised you the most in your research down this particular track?
2: Um, what surprised me the most, I guess, It surprised me that like the ideas that we now take for granted, kind of like what you're saying about your friends, not really liking bootlegs at a certain time and you understanding it as like being helpful for like getting the music out. Um, It was, I guess, interesting to me that like all those ideas are present throughout the early seventies, but like, because of either technology or communications technology, like you couldn't do any of that. Like it wasn't like the the highway wasn't built for that yet. And it took a while to get the highway built. And then it took a while for like a band, like the Grateful Dead to be like, okay, well this exists. We haven't done anything about it because we don't want to police it. What do we do with it now? And then it becomes like more of like this culturally understood phenomenon, you know? And I think I thought maybe it was a little bit more like a a decision, like an actual decision, but it turned out to be like, just like a bunch of people in the same room at the same time, over a series of years, just like talking about it on and off again. So it really wasn't like this concrete thing. And that was, I guess, like, kind of the most interesting thing about me pursuing, like, like some sort of thesis, I guess. <laughs>
4: That's That's
2: really
1: it, all, it all springs out of their philosophy. It's like the music is that way. The business is that way. Like, everything. Yeah, he's like, we're culture. done with it. Right. Yeah. I mean, like, what are we, we're not trying to, like.
4: <laughs> yeah.
1: Bring it all a little springs from the
4: same philosophy. The, yeah. <laughs> exactly. What what was the 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 advent of the whole like giving tapers a section? Like, what? How, how did that all begin? And around what time period in the deads? Like, did you learn about that part? Like the well, when then, that all
2: sort of the first official taper section happened in October of nineteen eighty four. So that I knew late. that I knew that for sure. Excuse wow. Me. And that's why I, like, when I went to the archive, I narrow, you know, I was like, all right, well, where's, where's anything about like that time period? Cause maybe that's something I can expound upon. Um, and so luckily their, their meeting minutes are saved for like 83 through 86, you know, like I don't think they really got that organized back in the seventies. So you're looking at it also a moment in, like the Grateful Dead's organization where they're like, we are Grateful Dead Productions and we have also, you know, this is before GDM, Grateful Dead Merchandise. So like they haven't really become the slick oiled, like capitalist oriented kind of entity that we all know now today, like, which has been functioning, you know, well since the nineties, at least. Um, so they're like trying to, kind of just figure out how to become like a better more greased machine not in the sense of like slick greased but like greased in terms of like functional yeah. so like yeah. fans Smooth can go. moving right yeah like fans Efficient. can buy, buy tickets yeah which is also an interesting thing because my research and interviews basically led to like the ticketing system that they developed and the 80, you know, they started that in 83. So that's like one year before the taper section is born. They're starting like to actually, you know, change the music business in the sense of like taking ownership over their ticketing, which was pretty revolutionary. Um, Even though like mail order tickets had been offered by other bands earlier, you know, this was like a big decision to really like take over 50% of their, Tickets for any venue and control that. Um, so you have that ticketing happening, you have a new like generation of deadheads coming in in like in the early 80s and around 84, strangely, it seems like a lot of people jumped on the bus. Um and I think really what ended up happening to go back to your original question is like Dan Healy the sound engineer had been dealing with tapers since the very beginning because the band was like we don't want to deal with this you do the sound they're yours and so what I found out is like basically unfortunately I couldn't interview Dan which I wanted to but I didn't have access to him for whatever reason and the main story that keeps repeating over and over again from all the research is that there' were just was like tons of people being displaced or annoyed by tapers because they kind of like took ownership over like the space that they took up in a yeah. certain concert and or concert environment. And people just were getting annoyed. And it got to the point, there's one story that Dan repeats over and over again in terms of like interviews I've uh, research is that there's like these teenage this teenage boy and girl and they just like come up to the sound booth and they're you know sad because they basically got kicked out of their seat from some taper being like, no these are my seats because I have to tape and like <laughs> kicking them out. Yeah. And that being like the straw that broke the camel's back, uh, so to speak. And then it was, you know, it just materializes in these minutes these business meeting minutes, um, as just like a pitch. And it's just like, you know, should we try this? Um, so I think it was just like, you know, it's an annoyance actually tapers, although we're all grateful for them doing what they have done and providing all this, um, you know, archive sound, basically they were really like annoying to the rest <laughs> of the audience.
1: <laughs> it's always that our creative tension. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know? well,
1: the, the, My favorite thing is that it's like the band was already twenty years old. It's yeah. like, oh maybe we should get the business together. <laughs> <laughs> like they oh, started sixty five, like in eighty four, they're like, Okay, let's let's try <laughs> Yeah,
4: totally. That's Funny. how long it took. <laughs>
3: Hey there, Osiris listeners. I wanted to tell you about our friends over at Smartwool. For more than 25 years, Smartwool has been making merino wool socks and apparel designed to keep you comfortable because they want to help you play, laugh, and explore in the outdoors with every thread they knit and every step you take. Because they believe that comfort sharpens focus and lets you perform beyond your limits. They're here to help you feel good. Now it's up to you how far you will go. Take 15% off of your first order at smartwool.com. Smartwool. Go far, feel good. I guess if you put it in
2: perspective of like the weird business models, they were not really following even. It's like they're just coming off the heels of like their decision to run their own record company. Yeah. And like, you know, what's that like 74 ish and like wake of the flood came out. I think that was the first one. Yeah. So like that money suck just from that being a bad business move at that particular time, you know, probably took a few years to get off of that. And then, you know, then they're like, Oh shit, we need money. Like,
4: That blows me away. I think it's hilarious too if you like any interview from eighty, you know, eighty, eighty one, whatever, they're just like, Yeah, well, the only plans we really made was just to go to Egypt. <laughs> that was like the only thing that they cared about. And they're like, We did it. So it's like, all right, everything else is gravy after that. So that's interesting to think I mean, about that. That like yeah, the eighties were kinda like, Yeah, we need money. <laughs>
2: going back to like working with many different people as a, you know, if, if you're the create, you know, the creator, I'm not going to want to put that power dynamic on there, but like, um, just for conversation, it's like, say you're the create, like the main creator, like, and you just want to go to Egypt and you got to deal with like all this other crap, like, and all these other people. And that's the only thing you want to do. If you like get that and you're like, all right, I'm satisfied. Now tell me what to do. We <laughs> gonna need to make money all right
4: yeah go ahead
2: find you know, way. well when yeah. i
1: talked to bob about it it seemed like they th- knew they weren't going to make any money because they knew they wanted to bring like everybody along so they're like we're just going to do it yeah like whatever we we want this experience we can do it if we don't try to like make money off it. <laughs> yeah. if we going like, to just like lose our ass and just do it yeah. it'll be the most memorable thing ever. that's the sense
4: I got from Bob about I, it I got that sense too from anything you see about Europe 72 I mean they had like two buses filled with people like touring what's well, the
1: philosophy that's how I did everything right. to like have an idea the community that, i guess you could say it's so big it's too big but maybe it's just left like so it's big because like nobody did it before right like the wall of sound or taking like 500 people to egypt or how many ever went you know what i mean <laughs> yeah, just like yeah. but they were just like let's just do it <laughs> the whole <laughs> philosophy is i mean and the miracle is that they got away with it
2: yeah yeah anybody I mean, else what i know i think um in a Podcast from a few podcasts ago, you guys were talking about like being isolated as a musician and how like, you know, the, on the outside it's like, wow, you're successful and you're like a musician and you're playing music and you're having a great time. And then it's like, you got to go back to your hotel room and wait for like 23 hours until the next show or whatever. <laughs> And I think you were talking about it, Mike, in terms of like comedy, it's like you wait 23 hours to do like a 20 minute set and then you're fried. Yeah. And I think it's like, what better thing to do in a situation where you're successful and you get to do what you want creatively and you can bring everyone that is near and dear to you to come along for the ride. Like, I think that's it's a dream come true. Some, really, Something not a lot of people get to do. And also in terms mm-hmm. of like 2022 thinking, like, I'm not sure if people that are in the business of certain industries, like want to do that because they want to take the cheese home for themselves. And like, they don't understand, you know, it's probably more generative to like have other voices in the room or other entities and energies in the room while you're doing this like creative thing. So it's just like those business practices don't seem very practical, obviously because of money, but You
1: know, best practices and Grateful (laughs) have only gone together like in the last (laughs) how many years? Yeah, really,
4: right? Because you can't
1: with the the philosophy that they have is directly opposed to like business best practices, you know, like, yeah, it is what it is. (laughs) I mean,
2: even with the book, sometimes it would be like. I knew like as an artist, like I always come into this problem. It's like always going to be money. It's like production. How much does it cost to do the thing you want to make physical in the world? Right. And a lot of times with the book, it was like, I know this is probably impossible, but like I get one shot at this, like, how do I make it work? And like, I'd have discussions where it's just like, I just really want to make this happen. Is there any way to do, you know, like, trying to work on that level just like let's just go for the impossible like how many choices do we have like let's look at all the choices please like that will help in terms of like making something new instead of just being like oh we don't have enough time or money to do this so like you know you just as a as an artist you just got to throw yourself into that sometimes and be like i'm not making any money off of this it doesn't matter i want to see it through and then you know (laughs) You kind of are more proud of it. I mean, you might be broke afterwards, but... <laughs> but know. then
1: somehow they just like kept being able to rebound. Because mm-hmm. like in the in the beginning, you know, when Bear had, had provided the house and everything, of course, they weren't allowed to eat vegetables. They just stocked <laughs> the fridge with meat. Raw meat. It's like meat only. But they didn't have acid. to worry about it. Yeah, they could just like think about the music the rest yeah. was provided yeah. and somehow along the way like the rest has always been provided for them to just be completely unreasonable i say that in a good way in <laughs> yeah, its good untethered. connotation you know yeah. untethered or un uh restricted yeah yeah. any kind of best practice it's just like the sky's the limit what can well, I it seem, really yeah it
4: seemed like they're different it's like what if wasn't part of their vocabulary you know what I mean in the negative way like in the the ruminating like like oh what if we do it? Oh, yeah. no just go for it you know and it whether it was play for a I mean like they, they go to Veneta Oregon in 72 and play for Kesey's Creamery and that how many years later turns into an amazing documentary of like one of their greatest shows and you know, all the pranksters are running around and stuff. And it's, it's to this day, like they did it and now it's something that people can enjoy. Like that spirit, I think Mickey called it misfit power. I always liked that, (laughs) but they kind of had this like, just go for, you know, like that's what makes them so special. And that's why a a project like yours is available to do. You know what I mean? Like, Mm. The dead has created this tree yeah. of like everyone can go do something off of a dead branch if they want to. every single state has thirty successful dead cover bands <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know what I mean like there's so many things that the dead has provided like as the trunk of the tree, and you just create your you take your you know branch
2: as far as you want to take it right I mean that's, that's so- kind of what I experienced in. Because like baby when I was like 12, 13, 14, like I started getting into the dead. And one of my favorite things to do uh growing up in Chicago was to go to this public library in the kind of neighboring town Evanston and where Northwestern is. And so they had a really good library and I would just do research all the time. And in researching the dead, it would always be like snippets of information here and there. And you might not get like too complete of a story. Obviously, the Internet wasn't really robust at that point. So you just get these snippets. And so with the book, I was like, I just kind of want the book to be this thing where you can turn to whatever page you want. And you could just read one page and you could have that experience of like, oh, I could go to the next page or I could go to like a page 50 pages back and I'll still like either see something I haven't seen before. That's new information or like, you know, there's bunches of J cards, uh, scans documented in there. Um And so you can, you know, flip out over that and be like, oh, this design is cool. This graphic is cool. But like, I just wanted it to be this very overstimulating visual and like informational experience where you just are like, yeah, this could literally go anywhere you want it to. Yeah. So
1: for fans like me that don't know what is a J card?
2: A J card is the tape cover, which is shaped like a, oh. a J on the side profile.
1: I got you. Yeah. I got you. That's right. That, I remember it. The cassette yeah. thing.
4: That was like one of the big, right? So that was like a huge determining or, or it was like a tag pretty much, right? Like your yeah. unique, your unique, like J card style would separate or
2: identify your tapes from others yes in some degrees although i realized from collecting for the project itself that like the more the the more anal retentive like bland j cover there is that means like probably the quality of the tape is actually like the sound quality is better so like for some i think you know especially in retrospect it's like wow all these cool designs like that's what it was all about but like the real deal tapers i feel are like i just Put the information down It's like What songs am I gonna listen to And how good a quality Is this tape Um, That's so funny To think about
4: that Like I remember Going to tape Like conventions And stuff And there would just be Like Tables Of like Crates And stacks of tapes And some of them Just said dead, like Mars hotel style, like without like one line missing from each letter, you know, like, the and then just a G lightning bolt D and then the date, and then there would be the ones that were like Alice in Wonderland, like on a mushroom, (laughs) like it was like looking at like, you know, blotter art kind of, and I'm like, Oh my God, that's, it's intense the way, but you're right. It seemed like the more like plain and (laughs) it's like the good stuff was on the inside of the tape.
2: Yeah. Basically. Yeah. And it's funny just to come to that realization after taking on so many, um, tape collections, it's always like, oh, this looks really anal retentive. Let's see what kind of awesome, like front of, front of board tapes this guy's got, or like, you know, how old are even these tapes they are probably like super old. Um, Did
4: you, did you, did you connect with a lot of, uh, collectors on their, uh, path or patterns with, with the tape? I, I think as,
2: as part of the overall project, like the actual, you know, art project that was collecting the tapes, um, that was part of it, you know, the social entity and like having traded tapes back when I was a teenager, it was like, I, you know, I knew that system when I started the project 2010, it was like, I feel like the grateful dead as like, a Cultural phenomenon might have waned a little bit, like the attention paid towards the Grateful Dead wasn't as robust, so like people were getting rid of their tapes a little bit more than they are now because now it's more treasured as like the Grateful Dead is ushered back into some form of um, popularity. Um, although they never left, you know, at all, but um, the you know going to people's houses and like digging through like chests of drawers, you know, you know, four feet high, just like going through them and them telling me their, you know, experiences of like making the tapes or whatever it is, was, you know, very rewarding just to kind of like hear these people. Cause they're done, you know, at that point they're like, I'm getting rid of these tapes. I Spent a lot of time on these tapes, spent a lot of money on these tapes. and in most instances, like I'm giving it to you because like I like what you're doing um, and want them to have another life. So it's like kind of this cool thing to kind of be bequeathed this like meaty yeah you know it's like symbolic of just like this person's life experience intrinsic to these tapes, you know, embedded in them in some way. So like, I feel like that the spirit of the individual is encased in, in the, in the tape collection itself. So like, you know, I'm, I still go through the overall collection and it's like, Oh yeah, that's like John's collection or like, Oh yeah, Tom, like gave me this tape and like, you know, this is, you know, Tom's first show or whatever, you know, it's like, everything has like value at that point in terms of like personal experience, not like monetary life. Yeah.
1: It's someone's whole life. And I mean, that's the
2: same, same with the archive, like the vault of music that the grateful dead have, like that's their, you know, story is 1965 through 1995 all on different tape source. So, you know, it's like the, the audio cassette tape trade actually for me is like, you know, it's, it's about the Grateful Dead, but it's also then about like this individual story that I'm meeting Hmm. for the first time. And, um, you know, it's just kind of, it's charged and that was cool. You know, it's like, it gave me this ability to kind of go into someone's life and kind of see, what they're about and you know hang out that's for really a second cool. so the book so
4: the book is you said it's 5 pounds i mean like i took a look at a digital copy and it's like the cover looks uh it it looks very uh archival and very like a uh, you know it, it's it's a it's gorgeous like it seems like you really spared no expense with the uh
2: the layout of it all so well, is is well, it actually 5 pounds it was 5 pounds when it got mailed to me so that's what i mean i was surprised too i was like oh dang i made a five pound book
4: <laughs>
2: i didn't know that i didn't because we i've been <laughs> you know for two years i'd been editing it uh remotely uh just on computer so i mean obviously i have a sense of what it'll look like page by page but when it became physical i was like jesus this thing is huge yeah that's so, that's a coffee table book yeah it's a so, lot of shows I mean, uh yeah, I'm very proud of it and um I'm glad that you uh were impressed by it digitally.
1: How's like, it changed your relationship like for you to see like <laughs> a live show or has it it changed your relationship to the music? You feel, I mean it's got to have to some extent.
2: I, I think well the book and the and the art project itself, like um Yes. I mean, it definitely has changed my relationship to like Grateful Dead music. Uh, I have to take a lot of like long breaks from listening to the Grateful <laughs> Dead. Yeah. Uh, so like, I mean, I think the common misconception with a lot of people and friends is always like, oh, yeah, you're the Grateful Dead guy. Like you've been listening to the Grateful Dead like yesterday, right? Or like, you know, are you listening to the Grateful Dead right now? And it's like, actually, I'm. Um, you know, like I might be on a, like a three month break, just it's like too, too much grateful dead music. Um, (laughs) We all have to, you know, and and I feel like the band probably themselves were probably like, I mean, I'm sure you at times are like, all right, we're done with tour time to jump into something else for a second. And then I'll get back to it later with some (laughs) new insights. Um,
1: I like to let it hit me. Like it's so ubiquitous that, and I don't uh, shun it at home. So I I like the kind of thing like where you're talking about your book where you could get in at any point, it just like open the book at random and be like, oh, that's cool. Yeah. And that's how I do, you got like 55 years. <laughs> I prefer the older stuff, but between 65 and 85 or even 90. 60 from 1965 to 1990. I like to just like pull a card out at random and just see. And it really hits me, especially with Phil, because I'm a bass player. But everybody, it's always changing. And I'm like, you know, the keyboard player changes. Yeah. And I just, it it hits me differently every time. But I don't like sit there and go, oh, let's put on the Grateful Dead. Like. You know, I do. Oh, yeah, I but I mean, you're supposed to like, you yeah, know. I, know, I know, I'm well, you know, i supposed to, and I do it's have co- like my manager, like grateful dead channel. If you get in
4: his car, that's it. Yeah. Like yeah, that's, that's it. Totally. Yeah. It's it not will- all he listens to, but in the car, like that's it. <laughs> you know, what's funny is when you mentioned that, it's got me thinking about all of the books that I love about the grateful dead are similar to that style where you can just pull, like open a page there's a, a oral biography of Jerry's life called dark star, which I absolutely yes. love. And an oral biography is just story in chronological order stories about that person told. So you could literally turn to any page and it's like your, it's a timeline of their life. Uh, the dead grateful dead family album, Geraldine, and Delius's mm-hmm. book is amazing, like that too, where you could just like it's like a picture book, but there's little snippets and news stories, and you know, fun fan written in letters. And then Linda Kelly wrote a book called Deadheads, and the the and collected all these stories from people. And I just leave that sitting on a table, and you could just open it and turn it. to it at any point, and similar to you know, Mark, we, you know what you're talking about and that's, that's the fun of it though. But that's what the Grateful Dead, again, it's imperfect in the sense that like, you don't have to go from chapter one to chapter, you know, 95. Right. Yeah. I mean, I,
2: I think I like, you know, it's like, I have high concentrated dosages of the dead and then I just need to like, get clear, you know, just feel like your palate. uh, yeah. Like be like, all right, what else can I get into? So I can like, you know, let's listen to some jazz or like, I don't know, like something like completely opposite, like ranchera music or something and just like <laughs> come, come back and like be like, all right, yeah, this is like, I miss this, you know, like this, the energy's good or whatever. The sound of the, you know, I, am I, I never really listened to, studio albums of theirs, but it's always been for the most part, live tape. So it's like, you know, with the collection that I have too, it's like, I, sometimes I could take hundreds of years to go through all the tape, but yeah. some tapes surprise me in terms of just the quality. It's like, Whoa, this is like not a soundboard. It's a front of board tape probably. And like, I can hear the audience. I can put myself right in, right in there. Yeah. Those are fun. And And it's like, you know, it's like you're trying, you're reliving that experience as best as possible based off of the document left. Um, and that's the stuff that kind of sucks me back in. It's like, all right, now, like I'm doing this every day for, you know, until I get sick of it. (laughs) So (laughs)
4: um, That's awesome that you put this book together, man. Where can people find it and how can people find, you know, more information about it?
2: So they can go to Anthology Editions website, which uh, I unfortunately don't know off the top of my head. We'll find um, it, and put it up in the yeah, we'll put yeah, it in the notes. But easy to Google search, obviously, um, and it will be available on September twentieth, and it actually is available for pre-order today. Um, awesome. So. Uh, it is available through them, and probably will be distributed to booksellers nationwide uh, shortly.
1: Fantastic,
2: man! That's great. Congratulations, man! Thank you, um, and thanks for having me on your podcast. This is fun. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, ten-year
1: pregnancy—you uh, deserve to get some podcasts out <laughs> <Yeah>. of <on>
4: it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I was just about to ask, what's the next band you're going to do this on? Are you going to do an almonds?
2: <laughs> i mean i'm open for anybody wanting to employ me to do research but uh as for now i'm i'm going back into my quiet uh art art studio life cool we'll enjoy that
4: and enjoy new mexico (laughs) thank you thanks for thanks for joining us
3: absolutely brother osiris